agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government of the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined today by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School. Welcome to the show, Ken. Hey, thanks, Trey. It's great to be here. It's always fun having you, Ken. It's always fun to do the shows. Now, we're doing them a little bit closer, and we're doing something a little bit different today. We're we're starting to try to have a, a, an overview for the shows as we go through, and I know Mike started that uh, a, a week or two weeks ago now. And we've got a lot of things. <laughs> we've got a lot of things on the docket. So here's what we're going to be covering in this week's show. We're going to start by taking a look about Biden on his crime slash gun uh, initiative. We're going to talk about that some. And then we're going to transition. I don't think it's too hard of a transition. I think we'll make a transition to the New York mayoral race uh, where we're going to have a chance to talk about both ranked choice voting, because I know that listeners are always very interested in, in different voting schemes, but also what some pundits are already seeing is a connection uh, between crime and the results and potentially both parties. Then if I know Ken and I, one of the only things we ever really get heated on is coming up third as we get into the infrastructure bill and everything there. And I think, I mean, we, we may curse at each other. I don't know. It, it could happen. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think either one of us curse, actually. So that's not going to happen. We're not going to curse at each other, but <laughs> we're going to get heated maybe. I don't know. Uh, and then if we have time, we're going to tackle two major Supreme Court cases. Uh, the first is going to be students' First Amendment rights off campus and how far that extends. And then we'll finish up the show, if again, if there's time, uh, with anti how antitrust laws impact the NCAA. Now, if we can't get it on today's main show, that just means we're going to have even more for a really exciting bonus show. That bonus show is our supporters-only midweek show. So if we don't get to it, that's where it's going to be. Uh, and if you are a supporter, you'll have access to that. But I've also got some special fun news. In addition to our supporters-only midweek show, this week we're also going to have a special, and this is available to all, it's just going to come through our normal channel, an interview episode. So we'll have a Wednesday interview. Yeah, we have an interview. This week I had the pleasure of interviewing Seth David Radwell on his book coming out next week, no less, entitled American Schism. So this week we're going to have our show. We'll have a bonus show as we always do, but we'll also have an extra open to all midweek interview. It's a big week coming up. But before we get into the, today's show, Ken, we're going to pause here for a word from our sponsors. Well, Ken, crime. Biden and crime. I don't know. It always comes back to this somehow. <laughs> but uh, we're good. But this week on Wednesday, Biden spoke on guns and crime. Now, why? I think a little bit of context here is useful. For the first time in some time, crime rates, especially murder, have been ticking up. Now, one of the trends of the contemporary age of, of my lifetime, of your lifetime too, Ken, we're close. We can, we can share a lifetime, I think. Uh, has been a decrease in crime. Beginning in the 1990s and moving forward, crime rates began and have continued to drop steadily. As a matter of, from, as a matter of fact, from 93 to 19, it dropped 49%. Now, this was a really important empirical trend 
in political science and specifically the sub-area of political communication. And that's one of my areas because it allowed us to look at the effects of media. What was really uh, uh, unique about this time was at the same time as real crime rates were dropping precipitously, media, specifically at the local level, although the national level and other kinds of shows did this too, began to increase its coverage of crime and specifically violent crime at nearly the same rate as true crime levels were decreasing. It was a great way to kind of get at, well, is it the thing itself is that what uh, indicates how voters are going to vote or is part of this or any of this effect uh, connected to communication? it's It's a cool literature. However, things have begun to change on the empirical side. In major cities, analysts like Jeff Asher are computing that the murder rate in 2021 is 23.5% higher than it was a year ago at the same time. Of course, the key question on policymakers' minds is, what is the cause? Now, on Wednesday, I think Biden made clear that he saw guns as at least one of the major primary issues here. And so his proposal, his five-part proposal, includes cracking down on gun sellers with a new zero-tolerance policy, uh, giving additional support to law enforcement to help with summer crime rates, specifically this summer, investing in community intervention programs, expanding summer employment for young people, and helping incarcerated individuals successfully reenter into the community. So, Ken, there's kind of two things I want to lead us with, I kind of want to point out and highlight. Uh, one, while I have been open to discussions on gun control, as a matter of fact, it was dawning on me I w- as I was doing the interview this week that the, one of the last times I did an interview, Mike did an addendum to the interview uh, when I interviewed the uh, author of Abolish the Sec- Second Amendment because he thought I was too sympathetic, right? You know something weird is going on when the left comes in and says, wait a second, Dre, <laughs> you're too sympathetic to uh, uh, gun control. Um But I'm a little leery here of the Biden connection that guns are the primary reason uh, that we're seeing an uh, an uptick in crime right now from 2019 forward. As a matter of fact, when you look at uh, the rates of guns involved in violent crime, uh, they're they're up a little bit, but not nearly at the same rate as we're seeing violent crime up uh, or murder rates. So, for example, if you look at somebody who's not even it's not the NRA or anything, if you look at the gun violence archive. Uh, violence-related shootings are up at the same time only 4%, so a far lower pace uh, overall than the increase in crime that we're seeing. The second thing I want to kind of uh, put out there for us, Ken, is I'm wondering if Biden isn't setting himself up a little bit here for failure. One of the issues that came from the left, and this is one of the ones where my libertarianness uh, kind of uh, fell on the left, uh, was that back in the day, the, 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 the kind of the standard procedure for dealing with crime was problematic, and it led to a lot of the systematic race issues that we see in policing. And so what I kind of see here a little bit potentially as we redirect some pandemic funds so that police forces can ramp up, maybe kind of that kind of policy in a 2.0 version. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering, what do you think about those two items? And then as we kind of get into more broadly, uh, uh, Biden's proposals on gun and crime. There was a whole lot in what you said. So I hope I hope I address everything. And if I if I fail to address some of the things you said, just remind me and I'll I'll get back to it. Of um, course. But the um, yeah. So the, yeah. So I, I think I, I would start by distinguishing and this is a distinction I think you drew, but I'd really want to highlight it. Uh, between um, uh, policy and politics here. Um, I I think there's an enormous disjunction right now 
between um, uh, what would be good policy and what would be good politics. Um, I, I, I think um, the politics, I pretty much agree with, I think, your your perception that um, the, 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 the increase in violent crime um, over the past year um, is going to be a big political issue, and it's primarily going to play to the benefit of um, law and order type uh, Republicans um, uh, and and against um, um, Democrats and, and other um, advocates of uh, police reform. Um, Although there I are some Democrats was, who have taken yeah, that position. You know, not to, you know, they're not all, I think sometimes it's easy to, to, to kind of group all of Democrats in a, a kind of a defund the police position. Uh, I think there's a little bit of space there, but I agree with you. I don't disagree. Politically, Republicans are going to be able to paint Democrats as the party of police reform. So even though not all not all yes. Democrats are yes. actually in favor of police reform, I think it's a political problem for Democrats. It's an issue that um, plays to the advantage of Republicans um, on, on policy, however. Um, and this is going to be a problem, I think, for for serious Democrats on policy. I don't see that there's any good policy reason um, to, to back away from police reform. Uh, based on this temporary blip in the uh, uh, crime rates. And, um, you know, I think Democrats are going to have to do it anyhow. I think they're going to actually have to um, capitulate to some bad uh, policy uh, initiatives um, um, for reasons of uh, uh, political survival, which I think is unfortunate. But I, I think, um, you know, that that's what's going to happen. And let me explain a little more. I think there were a couple of statistical um, fallacies or uh, in, in the way you presented the data that I would I would quibble with a little bit, even though your, your presentation was accurate. Um, I think it was spun in a certain way, um, which is that, you know, when, when you talked about the number, you, I think 25 percent increase was was that the number that you said? Uh, so, the one is 23.5. Yeah, 23.5 percent increase. Yeah. I think what you have to remember here is that that's that's as measured against a very low baseline. Right. So if you um, you know, I think we had um, um, homicide rates, uh, you know, as recently as two or three years ago that were below five um, homicides per hundred thousand population. Um, so if that goes up from um, five homicides per hundred thousand population to six homicides per hundred thousand population, you know, then, you know, numerically you could say, well, that's a 23 percent or 25 percent increase. But remember, we're, we're, you know, any increase is going to look big when you're starting against such a small baseline. We're still only talking about an increase of um, uh, one out of every one, one homicide out of every hundred thousand unit uh, population here. Um, which is, you know, if you looked at it that way, is statistically much smaller. Um, similarly, what you said about uh, firearm homicides, I, I think, you know, the way you presented it downplayed uh, the reality a little bit because the baseline was so large to begin with. Right. So if, if we're talking about, um, you know, if you look at all homicides, I'm looking at 2018 numbers right now, which are, you know, a good year. So in 2018, um, when homicides were a little bit less than now, there were um, uh, 19,141 homicides in the country and 14,414 of them were um, firearm homicides. So 75 percent, you know, a fairly high percentage are, are firearm uh, homicides. And so you know, if, if you say, well, that only went up by 4%, um, still, that's that's a lot more firearm homicides because it was a high percentage to begin with. Now, so I think I, now th I, there's truth. And I, I, you're right. When you have to put you have to put those kinds of mean statistics into, you know, level changes. And, and you're right. You got to talk about your base rate and what that change means. My my implication there wasn't about the absolute. So I'm not trying to say one number, you know. This percentage yep. of, of base rate is different from this percentage. 
rather what I'm I'm trying to get at is I mean again we're doing it in a in a in a podcast kind of way, but the the, the my hypothesis would be is is that the real base rate changes ought to be significant in the sense that of that new amount coming in, whatever that up is from 20, uh, 20, in this case, you're looking from 2018 and now we're talking about 2021. Yeah. If guns were the reason, if guns were the cause of that, you would assume that most of that change, that Delta would mm-hmm. be gun, right? In other words, the gun, the, the guns are the ones that explains the change from whatever that baseline is to whatever this new data point is. What I was only trying to get at was to say was I don't think I, I don't think we've established kind of a causality. Whatever the problem of guns is, and, I, and again, yeah. I'm willing to have that conversation. It doesn't appear that its presence or absence as a variable is the thing that explains that uptick. And again, and I think you're right in pointing out when it's low, those numbers are going to be higher. But however you want to think about that uptick, I don't think it's explained by the presence of guns any more than guns explained at its its relatively low rate in 2018. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say I disagree with you on that, but I, I will say I think it's a little more uncertain than you're saying. I'm not. I'm not. I I would just say I don't know. You know, rather than saying you know you're right or you're wrong, because the way I'm the way I'm trying to think about this is. You know, let, let's say, you know, it, it, I mean, it's a fact that 75 percent of all homicides are, are, are gun, gun homicides. And so if, if the um, homicide rate increases a lot, then 75 percent of all the new homicides would be gun homicides. And, and what, 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 what you're um, hypothesizing is that, well, that doesn't have anything to do with more availability of guns. But I, I would just say, I don't know. I mean, we know that most of these new homicides are being committed with guns, um, even if the rate of, of gun homicides um, hasn't changed much. So I, I just think that makes it cloudy to say, well, you know, if we have if we have a lot more homicides and three quarters of all of them are being committed with guns, just like three quarters of all the old homicides were being committed with guns. I, I wouldn't rule out the idea that, um, that that they've been facilitated by greater ability of guns, although I wouldn't say the case is proved either. Well, well, here and maybe I'm going to take, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, we'll get on things. But as a scientist, if if you have a jump in data, right? So if you're looking at a time series and you're saying, okay, I have these new data points and I'm trying to understand what changes me from here to this new norm. Now, again, the other thing that we have to decide here, and, and I would want to caution, I think this is part of what you get it to at the politics and the policy, is that the the politics of this says, oh, we have definitively a new rate. I mean, it very well could be that what we're seeing is an outlier on, or noise, effectively, noise yeah. in a larger trend. And so, you know, for those of us who are just talking about this in policy terms, I, I'm not even quite willing to say, hey, I think we found you know, we've had a structural change and therefore it is. But assuming we have had a structural change, I, I think your point there to say, well, if it's 75 and then it's 75, you know, we can't rule it out. I mean, I mean, you can't generally rule many things out on that kind of scientific. But if I, as a scientist looking at the data, I'm not going to argue that we've had a structural uh, uh, shift to a time series on a variable that has existed through the whole time series if I don't see anything, any movement in uh, the explanatory power uh, uh, of that. And, and you should see that at least a little bit in the mean, in that 
Uh, so if, if yeah. something was unique about guns, and, and again, that's, that's there why I think that I, I'm having problem with Biden already saying, well, hey, listen, we got this, we got this crack. We do this gun thing. We're going to fix this. We're going to fix yeah, no, this crime problem. I, I, I completely agree with you on Biden. That's that's entirely about politics and not about policy. But 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 what I would say just and then I'll stop talking about how to look at data. But uh, <laughs> I, I think no, this know, is I, fun. We don't do yeah, that often. I, no, I'm sorry. I, Go ahead. I, 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 all I would say is I think these questions are more answerable um, through um, um, research that I haven't seen yet which would look at um, compare localities against other localities, because we're talking about national numbers here. Uh, but there's there's places where the gun laws have actually been um, liberalized uh, over the past few years. And there's places where the, the gun laws um, were already very, very lenient and haven't really changed. And I think um, you could it, I haven't seen this work, but it seems to me it could be done if you wanted to really tease out, well, what's the impact of, of gun regulation on changes in crime rates? You know, compare the places where gun regulation has, in fact, been more been relaxed and weakened over the past few years with places where it hasn't been relaxed and weakened over the past few years. Compare and see if you get differences in the in the change in crime rates. And and, um, you know, I, I'm thinking particularly of Chicago. I mean, I haven't seen this. I haven't seen Chicago compared with any place else. Um, but, you know, Chicago is one of the cities that's doing the worst right now. It, it's had a massive increase in, in gun crime. Um, and of course, it is the city where the U.S. Supreme Court struck down all their gun control laws. So, um, you know, you know, I'd have to see that compared with other places, but I, I, I'm not going to draw um, conclusions just from that anecdotal evidence. But it seems to me like that at least suggests we could look into the hypothesis that places where um, it's become easier to get guns recently are really possibly um, um, potentially, and this has to be verified, you know, driving um, some of this increase. So I think that's possible. On the other that hand, is possible. Create- and that is possible. And, and just to kind of point out for listeners, well, I'm just going to geek for two seconds for those yeah. who might want to know what you've set up. There is a naturalized experiment, right? So one way to try to get at the, the, at the question we're looking at is to say, well, you can, you can compare these different locations, right? So, it generally in the social sciences, you know, we can't put people into different countries and see what the outcomes are. Instead, we've got to find these naturalized experiments and then do it. And that's what you're suggesting. The other one, the one that I had, uh, that I was mentioning, you know, the other way to do it at the national level is you can use what's called time series analysis, where you're looking at aggregate data over time. And you can then attempt to see if different uh, changes over time can explain a structural change in, in data over time. And that's a second way that uh, social scientists can get at these broad questions. And I don't think either one of those are wrong. And as a matter of fact, that would be a great way to do it. it I, I mean, obviously, nobody's done data on 2021. It takes longer than that yeah. to make it happen. Um, but I agree with you, that would certainly be a, a very valid naturalized experiment. And let me come back around to the part where I completely did agree with you. So I'll just highlight that. Um, I, I think there's um, the 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 um, changes in crime that we saw in 2020, um, and they've continued a bit into 2021. Um, it just seems so um, probable to me that this is what you called noise because of the pandemic, um, because we had a whole lot of people um, thrown out of work, you know, with nothing to do, hanging around all the time. We had a lot of people thrown into kind of desperate um, economic circumstances. Um, you know, some of some of the populations that were most affected by this were young young men um, um, and, and particularly young men without um, careers or without college educations. Um, they're put in a much more desperate um, uh, 
uh, circumstance than, than they'd been living in before. And that, that kind of thing is uh, uh, typical, uh, a typical driver of, of crime. So it seems to me that if you see a change in certain kinds of violent crime during a pandemic, um, it, it, it seems natural to hypothesize that that may have been actually caused by the, the social dysfunction associated with the um, pandemic um, more than other things. And, uh, um, and so I, I tend to think it's going to blow over um, as, as the economy reopens just naturally, although we're never really going to get a clean um, way to look at that because there's going to be a lot of uh, policy responses. So we're not going to find out um, if, if it would just blow over without, without new policy responses. And that's always that's always difficult. You know, you, you don't get the null in these kinds of yeah. situations always, which is which is which is difficult as a social science. So I want to ask kind of one last little thing in here. And I had hinted at it, but I want to be explicit. You know, uh, this upcoming uh, week, we're in the midst of thinking about and li- uh, f- kind of finding the end to some of the cases on police interactions that had led to the Black Lives Matter protests. And and one of the things that that I worry about, and I, I wonder if you, if you're in this camp too, is by kind of are we resetting that clock again? I mean, it, it seems like every time that there is some positive move forward in thinking about, uh, and you had mentioned just briefly, kind of the police reform side of it. Every time we make some positive movement in that direction, as soon as we have anything that resembles. Uh, either the perception of crime or, in this case, the actual uh, uptick in crime, that all just, and that's just gone. <laughs> and, and again, here, this, this, this is kind of particularly troublesome because this is one of the things I think Biden was, was promising on, was that he was not going to repeat the mistake. I mean, he called it a mistake that he had taken in the past. And, and I, this seems like a repeat of that mistake. I mean, is that just me being too critical of Biden? Or, or, or do you agree that this is, in fact, a setback for uh, uh, police reform as it concerns systematic racism and, and Biden kind of walking back his position on saying that he was wrong? I think it's too early to say, uh, because I think the, the things, the, the initiatives that he announced, um, you know, the devil's going to be in the details of how they're implemented. Um, so, for instance, um, Biden announced that he's freeing up $350 billion of the funds that had already been allocated um, for state and local governments um, as part of the uh, COVID relief funds. And he says that money can be used now to shore up police departments and to support um, community-based anti-violence groups. So, um, you know, one way of looking at this is, well, um, this is money's all just going to be used to hire more police who are going to have um, fraught interactions with um, communities. And that that would be a backsliding, as you're talking about. Um, and or be for building their arsenal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Which would be terrible. Um, but I think another way to look at it by him saying to shore up police departments and to support community based anti-violence groups is that um, he's kind of pursuing a two track strategy here where, you know, if, if the defund the police movement has been about um taking away money from police forces and giving it to um, alternative institutions that can deal with different kinds of social problems, um, uh, you know, deal with with homeless people or with, um, um, uh, um, you know, more social work type stuff, basically. Um, uh, I I think by freeing up this much money, you know, the money could be going into that stuff. And then that would, um, you know, it wouldn't defund the police. The police would still have as much money as they always had, um, but it would be... um, 
giving money to other government, state and local government institutions that could do some of the frontline work that police wouldn't have to do anymore, which would be, um, um, you know, some of the most that would uh, ameliorate some of the most fraught interactions between uh, uh, police and communities. And so that that could advance um, some of the goals of, of the um, uh, police reform movement by funding shoring up institutions other than police um, um, without actually taking any money away from police. So I, I think that would be um, not necessarily bad. Um, and uh, I, I think we, we haven't seen how things are going to go. The other parts of the initiative, I think, don't um, really go against the goals of um, uh, police reform because he did things like he um, directed the Bureau, Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms to revoke the licenses of gun dealers the very first time they violate new federal zero law policy on, yep. on, on background checks, right? No, so so doing something like that, like saying gun dealers better do their background checks or they're going to immediately lose their licenses, um, you know, that is um, a, a, a nod towards gun control regulation, but that's not at all in any kind of opposition to um, the goals of um, the um, police reform movement. So, so I think, um, you know, there I think it just... It just, you know, he some of the initiatives that he um, has announced, we'll have to see how they play out. But I, I don't think I wouldn't jump to the conclusion that this is really going to be about providing arsenals to police, although it could be. And I'd be disappointed if it is. That's going to be something we'll have to kind of continue to look at. And we'll have to continue to take a look at how that data comes out. And we'll have to have more conversations about that. What I want to turn to next, Ken, is the New York mayoral race and all of the it's a change. Every time we ask for listener questions, we always get things on different kind of voting systems. So the New York mayoral race is a, is a really great one for that. But before we get into it, uh, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsors. So, Ken, as we come back from the break, what we want to get back into is the New York mayoral race. And as a matter of fact, it's being tallied as we speak. Uh, but according to the Wall Street Journal, Eric Adams is holding the strongest lead with 31% of the nearly 800,000 votes. Now, the mayoral race is worth talking about in part because of the election method. It's the first time they're using ranked choice voting. Ranked choice voting is a system in which you vote for more than one individual on the ballot. As a matter of fact, out of the 13 candidates, uh, New Yorkers had the opportunity to vote for five. Now, they're not just voting for five equally. They're actually ranking those one through five. And so in this case, what ends up happening is that those who don't re reach a certain threshold get thrown out, and therefore those ballots then move down to choice number two or choice number three. What is uh, unique about Adam's lead currently, of course, was he had not gotten a lot of that number one spot. As a matter of fact, uh, Adams seemed to primarily be getting a lot of number two and a three. We're not officially going to know a winner or be declared a winner until July 12 because we still have to uh, do the absentee ballots. And as we get into the weekend, uh, not all of the ranked choice uh, voting math is finished yet. Now, on the Republican side, uh, Curtis uh, Salua, uh, founder of the crime prevention group Guardian Angels, won with an outstanding 69% of the votes. Now, I mention that because one of the pundit takeaways right now, Ken, is that maybe the reason that Adams is as high as he was uh, and the Republican wins is because of their stance on crime. As a matter of fact, Adams was early in his promises on this, 
And to link back into what we were talking about with Biden, one of the things that Adams promised at the outset of the campaign is he's going to bring back an anti-crime unit in New York that was disbanded after the the Black Lives Matter protests. So I kind of wonder, there's two kind of tracks here. One is this ranked uh, choice voting, and the other is the beginning of trying to to untangle the possibility that crime is already playing a role uh, in not only the Republican side of it, as you had mentioned in the Biden, but perhaps even in Democratic primaries. So thoughts about the New York mayoral race? Yeah, I mean, the, the New York mayoral race, um, I, I, Adams um, did um, run, as you say, a, a, in opposition to um, the other Democratic candidates who all, to, to one degree or another, you know, some to a small extent, some to a great extent, were to the left of him on, on police reform issues. Um, but, uh, you know, Adams also got support from communities um, on issues that had nothing to do with that. You know, he he had the best links to um, uh, organized labor, which supported him, you know, on, on, on their issues, which were not really um, uh, crime issues. Um, he was the one uh, African-American candidate and he had deep roots in, in New York's African-American communities and got a lot of support from those communities. And perhaps you could say, well, that's also those are the communities that are most concerned about crime. But I, I don't know that I'd say it was entirely about that. And finally, I'd point out that, um, you know, this was a multi-candidate race and Adams only got about 31 percent of the vote. So, you know, a lot of the dynamics of why he's going to um, end up probably being the winner, although that won't be sure for a couple of weeks, is um, you know related to the fact that there were so many candidates and someone could win with only 31 percent of the vote. Um, but still, you know, that means that nearly 70 percent of the voters um, didn't didn't vote based on his strong anti-crime stance. Um, so I I don't. I think there's a lot of uh, unique um, uniqueness to to why um, Adams is probably going to be the next mayor of New York. Although again, it's not certain yet. I would say it is certain that Sliwa is not going to be the next mayor of New York. No, so, I, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. So, um, uh, which also tells you something because after all, even though New York's a very democratic city, um, you know, Giuliani was able to win as a Republican there uh, in the '90s, um, really almost entirely based on crime you know, in, in a city that was um, very democratic. So if, if, if New Yorkers were as um, concerned about crime now as they were 30 years ago, then we wouldn't be laughing off the idea that, that Sliwa could win um, any more than people laughed off the idea then that uh, Giuliani uh, could, could win. Uh, the other data point, you didn't mention this, but I'll bring it in, that I think is um, somewhat refutes the thesis that crime has already become um, dispositive in, in, in urban mayoral races, at least, is... Uh, that in Buffalo, New York, um, uh, which actually has seen very much more significant increases in violent crime than New York City has, um, the, the year-over-year increase in Buffalo was more than 100 percent from 2019 to 2020. So, you know, re- very, very dramatic um, increase in, in violent crime there. Um, and 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 in the in the um, uh, Buffalo, New York primary, um, there was a really enormous and and unpredicted uh, upset. Um, where a, an avowedly socialist candidate who's very much part of the um, Black Lives Matter movement and who, who in, in part was initiated into politics through that movement um, and, and a serious advocate of police reform, um, managed to dump a, a, a relatively popular four-term incumbent Democrat um, by seven points in this primary. So, um, so I think we have to you know, look at the, the way political winds are blowing um, in New York, at least in, in connection with um, the, the Buffalo race as well as the New York City race. No, and 
my bringing that, you're right in the sense that I think often it is easy to want to take elections down to a couple of issues. And that's one of the ways, obviously, we talk rationally about elections. But of, but of course, underpinning elections is oftentimes far more structural reasons for winning and losing uh, than particular issues. And, you know, I think sometimes that's hard for, I don't know if it's hard for you. It's sometimes difficult. I mean, I, I recognize that intellectually as a scholar. I recognize the data on that front. But it is a, always a little frustrating to have to think, well, issues, I don't, they don't matter. <laughs> but even if issues were the primary, I think you're right. I don't think we can immediately draw a, an entire choice to it. But I do think the fact that you have an African-American who, in New York who is likely going to be the winner is, is on the, as you might have put it earlier for the Biden, on the politics side, going to be a, it's going to be a vignetta a, um, uh, of, a, of a larger of a potential narrative that's going to come as we come into 2022. And I think part of that will also depend on what actually happens uh, with crime rates as we move into 2022. But uh, anything about the ranked choice voting? I mean, uh, you oh. know, we oftentimes talk about these different kinds of systems. Did you like that we had this kind of system? Again, it, it's impacting Democrats. So I'd really like to get, kind of get your take on, or because the way you even yeah, kind of stated I, I, I it was, like, well, he only got 31%, so maybe you were against it. I was curious. Oh, no, I'm, I'm for it. I'm for ranked choice voting. I mean, it's a little bit, um, you know, it, it, you have to have some patience uh, uh, because it, it does mean we're not really going to know if he won for probably another two or three weeks. And, and it could even be looked at and said, well, um, in, in both Buffalo and in, in New York City, um, the, the candidate who um, got the most votes on Election Day as people's first choice um, is probably still going to be the winner in both cities at the end of the ranked choice counts. But but nonetheless, I'm totally for it. I think um, ranked choice voting is a, a great way um, that, that third parties can exist uh, within our two party system, which which I'm more or less um, in, in favor of. Um, and, and I think it's also a great way that um, candidates um, w within parties um, can, can present, um, you know, the different range of, of views um, uh, within their parties directly to the voters, because without it, there's such a, um, a tre tremendous pull to the center. Um, but with it, um, uh, candidates can, um, you know, voters can express um, that they have um, policy preferences that are farther away from the center. Um, while still not, um, uh, you know, sort of wasting their votes to cast that way. So um, uh, whereas it, without ranked choice voting, essentially any, any vote for candidates that are not, um, you know, adhering to the center or not highly or not highly electable would kind of be a, a, a self-destructive kind of way to vote. So I'm, I'm for it in terms of what it produces, but it's a little bit, um, you know, I don't know that this particular election is is a great case, case example of the, the virtues of um, ranked choice voting because I don't think it's going to change the outcomes in these races. And it is introducing a few weeks of, of delay to finding out what those outcomes re really are. One of the one of the things that in American social and cultural life that is weird to me is this idea that everything has to be instantaneous. And, you know, you were talking about it and I thought how how kind of terrible it is that the fact that it's going to take a week or maybe two weeks to know who the uh, the who's going to win is going to be the reason why we have or not have a particular yeah. voting system. Yeah, you know? <laughs> <Right. laughs> that, that we have to talk. And you're right, we do. I mean, that's something we have to talk about. Uh, but it, it's a, it's a little bit hard. Well, this one is faster, 
And yeah. uh, well, yeah, I mean, true. Uh, yeah. But I agree with you in yeah. that, you know, rank choice. It's, it's kind of that median ground as, as electoral systems go between proportional representation where you're going to get you can get a lot of different kinds of parties and voices. But here you're still ending up usually with two major parties. But you're getting, as you put it, a little bit more uh, spectral um, distance within the parties that you don't get when you have just simple first past the post uh, in single member district. Um, so, you know, that's absolutely true. Now, now, Ken, I think we should move forward in t- uh, to the thing that might get us, you know, heated. Yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I'm, I'll, I'm going to try to be heated. Who knows? Well, we need to talk a little bit about the infrastructure bill that, I don't know. It's the bipartisan bill that isn't. It might be the way you might want to put that. I don't know. But before we get into that, we're going to have a a quick word from our sponsors. So, Ken, the infrastructure bill. I set this up by kind of calling it the infrastructure bill that isn't. Uh, Maybe I'm already kind of playing my hand on this one. Uh, You know, a lot of pundits are calling this a breakthrough and I'm kind of with the Wall Street Journal. I'm calling it just a bunch of rhetorical BS. 21 senators, Republicans and Democrats announced a compromise on Thursday for the largest ever in history transportation package clocking in at $1.2 trillion. Now, we already know that we have some differences over, you know, the spending side. I'm just going to kind of put that aside for, the, uh, for a minute so we can talk more about the infrastructure bill itself. itself. Uh, what makes this uh, a compromise is this is that's totally on physical infrastructure, which is what Republican senators and uh, Republicans in general really wanted to focus on, whereas Democrats wanted to think more expansively about what infrastructure could be kind of to that social capital side. Uh, Again, so it's, you know, roads versus roads plus might be one way of thinking about that. Now, that might sound like a a, a huge breakthrough that something's coming through, that both sides are, are, are on board, but they're not really. As a matter of fact, at the end of the press conference, uh, Biden says that if he doesn't also get everything else that he wants, then he's not signing it. As a matter of fact, in his words, if they don't both come, I'm not signing it. Real simple. Uh, As a matter of fact, he would go on just 30 minutes later to say, quote, what we agreed on today is what we could agree on, the physical infrastructure. There's no agreement on the rest, end quote. Similarly, uh, Speaker Pelosi won't even bring it up in the House unless it, it, it has everything else. So, Ken, here's my question. After all of this hand-wringing, all of this, let's get together on something, what is actually the ever-loving point? Biden coming out saying that, that he's somehow reached a, a compromise is, 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 is a lie. That's not a compromise. To say we have a compromise, but I won't sign it unless I get everything else I want, that, that's not a compromise. Why is anybody reporting this? What does this matter? Uh, the Wall Street Journal and a few other outlets called it a di- instant double cross. And I have to say, I agree. Tell me I'm wrong and why, Ken. I know you disagree. Yeah, well, actually, so you built you built this at the beginning of the show by saying we were going to disagree on this point. But we don't disagree on this point. Oh, we don't. <laughs> and, 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 yeah. So, so there, there's no... Uh, this is a um, it's completely phony. I will just say that I um, said that two weeks ago, you know, when you and I talked two weeks ago, I, I said then and I'll stand by it now. There, there is no bipartisan compromise. The, the only um, the only thing that's going to happen is either that all the Democrats are going to get on board and, and pass the four trillion dollars um, on reconciliation um, or McConnell is going to succeed in blocking everything. 
Wait, um, wait a second. He's not blocking up. everything, yeah. though. They can get the infrastructure through. So, I mean, they, they can do that now. I mean, now who's blocking it is Biden and Pelosi. So if they can't get everything, then you can't say that McConnell is blocking everything. He's blocking half of it. No, I, I think he's I think he I don't think there would be. I know you said there's 21 votes here, but I, I don't believe that's the case because um, most of most of those um, uh, most of the, the 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 Republicans in that group ha- have actually said um, that they will not vote for, even for this bill um, if the other bill comes through reconciliation. And yet all of the Democrats in this group have always said, well, the other bill could still come from re- through reconciliation. So there never was an agreement. And, and really, this is that performative aspect of, of we talked about this at great length two, two weeks ago. Yes. Two, none of, none of, none of this was ever Manchin. about the Republicans. It's all about Manchin and Cinema. If I and I don't I can't predict what Manchin and Cinema are going to do. But from, from day one, none of this was ever about the Republicans and there was never going to be any Republican votes for any of this. And there won't be. Um, and so uh, so. So um, it's just a question of how how far Mansion and Cinema need to go, um, and really Mansion more than Cinema, I think, because I think Cinema will follow along whatever Mansion does. Um, uh, you know how how far he needs to go to demonstrate that he's gone to the mat for for bipartisanship. Um, I still extend great hope that more likely than not he's going to vote um, uh, for the for the for the four trillion dollar um, uh, complete uh, bill on reconciliation. And uh, I think it's critically important that the parliamentarian said that all that can be done on reconciliation. So Manchin's um, uh, promise not to change the filibuster rule, um, he would be able to adhere to that promise and still vote for all $4 trillion in spending, which are it's consistent with the the, the current filibuster rule, including the, the reconciliation exceptions to that rule to do that. Um, and I think he's just playing this out. And, and as I, uh, I'll sort of, I don't wanna repeat myself, but as I mentioned two weeks ago, I think it's taking the Dems all this time even to just get the bill written and agreed to amongst themselves so that part of what we're seeing is some some public theater while the Democrats are actually hashing out the bill. But I think 100 percent of the outcome is going to turn on whether the Democrats can can get Manchin and Cinema on board and pass a big bill on reconciliation. But I see zero chance that um, this um, uh, bipartisan compromise bill, as it's called, can actually get uh, of course it can't of course it can't because the the two principal uh two of the principal negotiators told us 30 minutes afterwards that it can't that's part of the problem but now here's the thing that two weeks we we did talk about mansion we talked about the political theater uh and and on that front i I, you know i think we were in agreement here's where i here's where i have a, a slight maybe this is more of a politics disagreement i think that biden doing it this way makes him look like an ever loving fool he loses he loses. He loses all of it here. And he loses it because he now is the one who owns things if it doesn't come forward, because he's the guy who says, well, I, I agree, but I don't. And so now he and Pelosi are the ones who own this. Now, had they never come out and said, we've struck this deal that we don't intend to really agree on, then I think that the political theater works in the favor of, of, of pushing pressure on Manchin, and, and it works in the favor of, of, of Democrats. Come, but by doing it this way, they they look like sleazeballs. There, there there is no positive spin on coming out and, and, and with Republicans and saying we have this. I mean, I can see where Republicans get a win for this. So kudos to those guys uh, for getting this because this looks awesome if you're a Republican. But it makes Biden look. Like a jerk. I mean, we're, help me on that one. That's that's the part I guess I really don't understand. So when you talk about this political theater, 
I get you want to put pressure on Mansion, but this seems like you're 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 costing yourself an awful lot of political theater points, especially here in just a few months as you start ramping up. Talk about the ad. I agree to bipartisanship, but I won't sign it. Like I, I, my 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 yeah. eight year old can write that ad. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. I, I, I let me start with Pelosi before I get to Biden. Um, so I, I think it was absolutely necessary for Pelosi to say what she said. I, I don't I, I agree with you. It's, there's different ways of thinking about what Biden's statements. But, uh, you know, the thing about uh, Pelosi is um, that, it, that that there's a lot of political risk that you may not be acknowledging here to dis, d- dispiriting Democrats. Right. That, that almost all Democrats want to see the Dems doing everything they can to to to, to pass the entire uh, bill. And, true, and the, the, the idea that, um, uh, you know, that the Dems might just capitulate to this, um, to, to the, 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 the basically the Mitt Romney group or the Rob Portman group here of Republican senators would be incredibly demoralizing to um, uh, Democrats who, who um, have majorities in the, in the House, um, sort of in the Senate. Um, and and, in, and and have the White House and who want to see a, a big bill passed. So I, I, I think that um, you can't discount that the, the, the almost all Democrats, really pretty much every Democrat in the House and every Democrat in the Senate, except for um, um, Manchin and, and Cinema, um, and almost all Democratic voters who are a majority of the public who put all those people in office, want to see um, something much bigger than uh, th- this bipartisan compromise bill. So um, I, I think the Dems, both from the standpoint of politically shoring up their own base and also from the standpoint substantively of um, you know, maximizing the, the pressure on, on Manchin and Cinema to actually go along with the bigger bill, um, they, they needed to signal this somehow. And so I, I'm fully on board with what Pelosi signaled, not only as a s- signaling method, but as an actual strategy. Like I think it would be better to um, risk passing nothing than to pass something that's not much better than nothing from a democratic perspective. Um, and so, um, so you know, the other question you raise is about Biden and whether Biden should also have said that or whether he should have just left that messaging to, to Pelosi, who could do that messaging and who has the ability to carry out that threat so that Biden would never even, he, had, he didn't have to make a veto threat because if she never takes it up in the House, he's never gonna have anything on his desk that'll have to veto or not veto. Um, you know, there, I think there's two ways of looking at it. I'm not going to say that you're wrong, um, but I will say the possible counter argument, and I, I can't really tell which one is true, um, w- would be that um, uh, he will get much bigger political rewards um, if this if the four trillion dollar bill actually passes, um, because it will be hugely popular with about 70 or 75 percent of voters, including quite a lot of Republicans, if it actually passes. And that that will um, uh, wash away, you know, w- within the next couple of years, whatever uh, political turmoil there was about the process for getting it passed. And so he's got to uh, take a risk, right? He's got okay. So he could take a short-term hit by looking like he's p- claiming to be bipartisan, but while actually being partisan, as as you say. Um, but that the the short-term hit from that would be um, if if he actually succeeds in getting. Um, the, the, the four trillion dollar bill through on reconciliation, the political rewards of that um, could be very much larger than the political hit from um, looking like he was too partisan. Well, we're going to have to kind of see how that plays out as we move forward into 2022, I guess, Ken. And, and, and I think additionally, the, the other side of this, we're not going to touch on it right here. I think we'll do that uh, in a future show in, in July when we when we talk about some more 
uh, economic stuff is, is the economic side uh, of spending that much. But we'll, we'll pause on that now because we're going to move forward uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about two, again, if we have time for both of these, uh, uh, Supreme Court cases. And, and, I, and we want to start with uh, students' sp- uh, speech rights and, and specifically students' speech rights off campus. But before we get to that, Ken, uh, we're going to break for just a moment uh, for our sponsors. One of the other big items, and, and we had actually already touched on this story earlier. I believe it was in a bonus show. I'm not positive. It could have been on the main show. I didn't actually go back and look, but I know we talked about it. It was in that part of my notes. Uh, was about a case that had been working its way through the court system about a profane social media post and the suspension of a cheerleader from a junior varsity team. Now, the case has now made it all the way to the Supreme Court in this uh, past Week, the Supreme Court, in an eight to one decision, overturned uh, a school's control of off campus activity. So, just a really uh, brief uh, uh, refresher on this a cheerleader had not made the varsity, and she thought she was kind of owed that. She went off campus with a friend, she was at an ice cream place, uh, and they uh, take a Snapchat and they're flipping the, the, the camera, a bird. And, and the caption is, you know, F uh, uh, um, cheerleading, F softball, F all kinds of things. She was also on the softball team. And, of course, this kind of stuff is not as ethereal as students think. As a matter of fact, almost every student, a lot of parents received this as well. And so she was suspended from the uh, uh, cheerleading squad for a year. Now, you know, long story short, she actually would make it on the varsity when she came back from her suspension, but it still makes it through the court because, you know, mootness only sometimes matters, as we've talked about in the, uh, uh, in the uh, in court cases. Now, what is I found uh, different about this case, uh, but I'm not surprised by because we've talked about this before, is that in the 8th to 1 decision, although they rule in favor of the speech, they in no way create a new rule about when can schools regulate off-campus and what could or could not be uh, off-limits. Although Breyer writes, uh, thus we do not uh, now set forth a broad, highly general First Amendment rule stating just what counts as off-campus speech and whether or how ordinary First Amendment stands or, uh, standards must give way off-campus, end quote. But he goes on that you have to allow for this kind of vulgarity uh, because you've got to protect vulgarity if you want to protect true speech, which I would actually agree with. The one dissenter is actually Justice Thomas, uh, who argued that the, by not setting that standard, all that the court had done was make both students and school districts' lives needlessly uh, complicated. As a matter of fact, Thomas writes, quote, the court's foundation is untethered from anything stable, and courts and schools will almost certainly be at a loss as to what exactly the court's opinion today means. So what did you think about uh, this case? And I couldn't help but thinking about our conversation a couple of weeks ago about uh, a case coming up on gun control where I argued, I don't think the court's going to be issuing kind of broad uh, edicts on these kinds of items. And here we are on free speech, and they just went as narrow as humanly possible. So what do you think about all this, Ken? Yeah, I I like your emphasis on the narrowness of the opinion, because I I really think this case says more about the Roberts court than about the First Amendment or the rights of uh, high school students. Um, uh, Roberts right now seems like he's on a uh, um, really a a campaign or even a mission um, to um, tamp down 
the public perception of the U.S. Supreme Court as a uh, politicized institution. And he seems to be really uh, um, exerting all the pressure that he possibly can on uh, his fellow justices to um, have not have um, uh, votes that break down on partisan lines all the time. And in order to accomplish that, and he has been accomplishing that, um, what it means is uh, having opinions that don't say very much. Because the, the more the opinions say, the more there's going to probably be those partisan disagreements. But the more they agree to leave things unsaid and unresolved, um, the more they're able to get more consensus on, on narrow grounds. And in that sense, you know, on, on the First Amendment issues here, um, I, I agree with the way you characterize it. This, this case doesn't resolve much. It doesn't do much. And it doesn't change the law much. Um, the, probably the most significant First Amendment um, result from it that one could that I could see is uh, that it is the first time since 1969 that um, students have won a First Amendment case at the Supreme Court um, against their against their schools. So they're, they're, they're in 1969 uh, in the Tinker case, mm-hmm. um, students got the First Amendment right to wear black armbands in school to protest the Vietnam War. Um, since 1969. There have been three um, um, uh, subsequent Supreme Court cases and and many um, circuit court cases um, where schools have always won in every case. And so student speech has has not uh, claimed another victory um, until until this week's um, decision in in the Brandy Levy case. And uh, um, so I think that's, you know, in a sense, that's a positive development. Um, But on the other hand, um, what the school was doing here was going very far beyond what any school had ever done before in, you know, really trying to regulate speech that had no plausible connection um, to, it wasn't in the school, it wasn't um, as part of a school program, it wasn't publicized to anybody but a small group of friends of the, of the um, you know, this is a, a student who sent a, a WhatsApp or a Snapchat or something to a couple of her friends on a Saturday night. Um, and so that went so far beyond past um, uh, uh, public school efforts to regulate student speech that, I, you know, I, I think if, if any line was ever going to be drawn, you know, on, on where the school has jurisdiction to discipline their students, you know, it would have to be here. And, 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 and pointedly, the, the Breyer majority opinion made a big point of saying that it wasn't deciding the question of whether um, this means that as long as students are um, off campus, not in school, and speaking in, in a way that isn't part of a school program, that, they, that they're free of school discipline. Um, it might have been nice, I think, for the court to make that clear, that private, um, private speech of students uttered uh, outside of school and not in connection with a school program um, is not the business of school authorities. Um, but, but the majority opinion made a point of saying, we're not saying that. So, um, so I, I think this, this doesn't really resolve all that much. No, you know, the only bit I have to add here is that one of the worries I see in the in the case, even as, as narrow as it is, is not even an attempt of thinking about this regulation of off-campus behavior. You know, as you point out, the last time, um, you know, it's, it was the 60s when we were talking about a case, and on campus, an era where off-campus activity was was very much delineated from on-campus activity. And one of the potential problems here by not setting that is you are suggesting, although you're right, it's a victory for a student for the first time. They are clearly, though, saying that there are kinds of off-campus speech that could be regulated. And I I will say from my point of view, that's a, you know, 
unless you're just talking about somebody as they're logged into their computer into a session or something where I can understand that's kind of a quasi on campus, I don't really understand in what senses a school would have any kind of interest in the regulation of off-campus speech that doesn't in some way directly be digitally touching. In other words, you are live with your, you know, in in some kind of classroom setting. And I'm a little worried that that... That that seems like a, a definitive line that ought to be drawn. Yeah, well, I'm a hundred percent. Yeah, I'm on your side on that. I'm a hundred percent in agreement with you, and I'm I'm disappointed that the court didn't do that. You know, so what what Breyer said um, in, in in response to that, um, uh, where he pointedly disagreed with the position that you and I are sharing. Yes, um, yes, very is, much. So. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he said that um, uh, that that um, uh, the schools have a. Uh, um, uh, part of their teaching mission uh, to teach students is to teach them um, um, certain kinds of um, things about what, what constitutes acceptable behavior. And also he said that um, uh, certain kinds of speech, even in a purely private capacity, could affect um, um, other students or could affect teachers. So he gave some examples like um, if, if students are um, off campus and using social media to harass uh, other students in their school, then in his view, um, that um, affects the ability of the student who's being harassed to be able to um, get educated in school. And, and for that reason, the school would have um, authority to um, regulate that kind of um, student speech, even though it's totally off campus and using non-school related platforms. And I, I think that's a bad slippery slope. I don't like to see the court getting into that, empowering school authorities that way. Um, he, he pointedly did reverse the Third Circuit the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which had also ruled in favor of the student, ruled on the on the the the, the stronger and clearer grounds that you articulated, Trey, and said um, that if, if this isn't neither um, uh, um, speech in school nor speech using um, some kind of school platform, um, then the schools just can't regulate it. Um, but but Breyer said the the schools can still regulate some such speech um, if if some sp- such speech is affecting the school or affecting other students in the school or affecting teachers in the school. Um, in some way that impairs the school's ability to fully carry out its mission or that impairs the ability of other students in the school to 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 um, enjoy their experience as students in the school. So um, it, it is a very unclear line. Now, I, I agree with Thomas's dissent to the extent that he points out that this is a very unclear line. However, I, I'm more in, in more important respects, I, I disagree with Thomas's dissent because his his um, remedy for saying, you know, the Breyer's creating just a, to make it broader. Line. He wants you know, he Thomas wants to go says, much instead, further off. Just campus. to make it broader, yeah, just say, yeah, yeah. Should, yeah, well, yeah. Let's let let's let the school just regulate all this speech and not try to draw these um, blurry lines and and not give the students any rights at all. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't agree with that, but I, I do agree with his 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 diagnosis, but not his prescription, I guess. And, you know, and this is this is an area and, you know, we could have a whole conversation about this. So I'm, I'm not trying to, to take this on as, a, as an entire go. But this, I think, is, is one of the kinds of problems you encounter when you're when you're having uh, this kind of public education, because I understand, you know, as as an educator, I'm a professor. And one of the things that we try to do at Oklahoma Christian University, and one of the reasons I signed on to this kind of experience, was a, a whole person development. Uh, and that includes thinking about a person's morality and our actions and, and how we live in community. But what I think makes the, the, the problem when you're doing it in, on, on the side when you have a, a government school is 
Everybody here is here voluntarily, right? So you're signing into these kinds of specific rules. And, and the Breyer kind of take, as you, I think, rightfully pointed out, suggests that there is one that can kind of be imposed. And, and, and while I certainly have a, a morality and I, I want to share and help students move towards in that direction, I don't want to enforce that. I mean, it, it, it's voluntary, right? It, it's not one. I don't want to go out into the world and say, do this. Uh, but rather, I want to help those who want to do it. And I think that's one of the advantages of thinking about education a little differently. But I know it's a bigger thought. There's a lot of thoughts there. And we have one last story. that I th- So I think we can get to everything if we handle this one, Ken. Our last story is the, another Supreme Court case that occurred on Monday. And that's where the Supreme Court uh, shot down uh, the NCAA. And this decision is unanimous. Now, the crux of the NCAA's argument has been that it can effectively bypass antitrust laws because it needs to preserve the good of amateurism in college sports. You know, never mind that, you know, Duke and UK make tons and tons of money. It's really about preserving amateurism. Uh, now, for student athletes, I think it's, it, it's worth saying, again, we both come from different schools, the vast majority of student athletes are, of course, amateur. Uh, They don't make money for their institutions. Our sports don't make money at at Oklahoma Christian University. We do it for different reasons. NKU, I don't know if they make money or not, uh, uh, Ken. I can't imagine they're making much money if they're making any money. They lose more more than $10 million a year on sports at NKU. That's what I kind of figured, right? But I didn't want to just throw that out without actually knowing. I hadn't looked it up. But there are a few schools at the top, and that's what this is really about, those schools at the top. And these athletes are bringing in millions and millions of dollars, but they can't get anything in return. So in this case, what's happened is is the court argued uh, that the case wasn't about total compensation, but it's about some kinds of educational benefits. And effectively, the the Supreme Court, in an opinion uh, written by Gorsuch, argues that colleges don't just get de facto immunity from the Sherman Act. I had to begin, the Sherman Act is the primary law that bans anti-competitive practices. He says, look, you don't get to just say, hey, we get immunity from the Sherman Act because you're doing this so-called good of preserving amateurism. Uh, And so as a result, colleges can now compete with additional educational compensation, including one of the ones that got a lot of attention was uh, some payouts for good good grades. But it includes other things like laptops and materials or special internships or, or trips, that kind of stuff. Now, the court is effectively saying that tradition alone uh, can't justify the NCAA's decision to build a massive money-making uh, uh, enterprise on the back of student-athletes. That's in the words of Kavanaugh. He would go on to say that, quote, nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate, end quote. So what did you think about then This has been this. Everybody's been talking about this in the sports world. What do you think about this on the legal side, Ken? Yeah, I, I think it's a um, I think it's a correct uh, application of the antitrust law. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I actually I did enjoy reading Justice Kavanaugh's uh, concurring opinion. Um, uh, I, I, I you know, it's, it's interesting because the as you as you pointed out, the um, the actually what was at issue in the case was, I would say, very fairly minor, um, almost trivial um, uh, uh, premiums that some of these colleges wanted to give to the student athletes. Because the, the, uh, under NCA rules, the, the colleges were already allowed to give 
tuition, room, board, book allowances, special tutoring. And, and, and so the only restrictions that were really at issue here, as you pointed out, were, you know, could that be supplemented to a very small degree by some things like um, musical instruments or scientific equipment or uh, payouts for good grades or study abroad trips? Um, what wasn't even challenged in this case was the, the restriction on not paying salaries. Now, this does seem to lay some groundwork for that. And it seems like the reasoning of this case would support the idea that, um, that the NCA rule that prohibits salaries from being paid to student athletes is, is similarly vulnerable. And I, I think it should be. Um, I, I think that the, uh, as, as a matter of antitrust law, there's no real basis for thinking that the Sherman Act shouldn't apply to intercollegiate sports. I guess my only concern about it, which is totally non-legal, um, is that I think you know some of the effect of this is going to be negative with respect to higher ed at most schools. Because even though I completely agree with what I take it as you know, substantial public opinion, that um, when you're looking at schools like University of Kentucky or Ohio State, you know, that, that make a fortune off their sports programs, you know, why shouldn't they pay their athletes? Um, but I think the, the, you know, in reality, there's not more than 100 universities in the country that maybe are really not make, even 100, maybe not even 100 that are making money off their athletic programs. And what you largely see in, in American uh, higher ed is um, what we see at certainly at NKU. And I don't I don't know if this is the same at OCU, but, uh, you know, the, already the tuition paying students are heavily subsidizing the student athletes. Um, and that subsidy is experienced both in the form of um, the, the tuition gets increased um, to cover the cost of sports and also academic programs get cut to cover the cost of sports. And that has a negative educational impact on all the students. And I think what we're really going to see here is that, for you know, this will apply to all schools. So the majority of schools that it's going to apply to, the, the net effect of it is going to be even further um, tuition increases, even further decreases in, in um, expenditures on academics um, to um, give more money to student athletes. Because I think um, many state legislatures, many of the type of people who serve on boards of regents, many university administrators do believe that um, high profile athletics is more important than academics. And so if they have to pay more to, to maintain the, or improve the quality of their athletic programs, they'll do that. And, and the money's got to come from somewhere. So I, I think it's going to have a negative impact on education at most schools, even though I think it is, it is it's legally the correct ruling. And I think it's also... Um, meritorious policy for those, um, you know, 50 to 100 schools that are actually making a lot of money off athletics. I agree. And you know, we can, we'll end the show on an agreement in the sense that the problem with this is, is that as a, as a culture, we highlight sports to the detriment of so many other things. Uh, and, you know, as the, you know, you, you've had kids too, Ken. Uh, as you know, I've got three kiddos and already it's, it's to watch some of the comparisons about how we have handled this. And again, I'm, I'm a sports fan. Uh, you know, I love the, the NBA, absolutely adore basketball. Uh, but at the same time, I, I there, there are a lot of things that even to get to those kind of places that families do that kids, it, it's amazing the emphasis that's put. And by the time they get to the university uh, level, the idea that we should be allocating all of these funds for that is, is terrible. And so the last little bit that I'll, I'll just add here is if if institutions really want uh, to be about what we talked about in that last case of thinking about the whole student and the whole person, 
what we really want these kinds of programs, what they ought to be doing is finding ways for uh, students to have lifelong health pursuits, right? So what's something I can do? So maybe I'm, I'm going to do running so that I can keep running or swimming for a long time. Because as you and I know, Ken, that's, you know, as you start getting to 40, having those, <laughs> that's the, that's the, uh, that's, that's, that's the bigger key here. Instead of just wearing people out uh, when they're 19, uh, in, in most cases, for no really good reason uh, whatsoever. But again, you're right. And, and you're right about what this probably means for schools down the, uh, the chain when it comes to their competitiveness. Well, Ken, it's been a lot of fun doing the show with you. I hope you've had fun too. Oh, yes, I have, Trey. Uh, it's been a great show. So I want to also thank you, thank all of our listeners uh, for listening to The Politics Guys. I know for all of the hosts, myself included, it's a lot of fun to do it. It's a labor of love. Uh, and it's all due because of really cool, amazing listeners like you guys. Now, of course, one of the ways you can help the show is by subscribing to The Politics Guys on the PodCap app of your choice, and so does sharing episodes word of mouth. Now, the other thing, though, of course, is we need your support. And by becoming a supporter, you get access to other things, including our supporters-only content. And that includes our full-length supporters-only Wednesday show. We also have our supporters' Discord channel. So there's all kinds of reasons why you would want to be a supporter. Now, this week, though, not only are we going to have the supporters' midweek show, we're also going to have a free-for-all interview show. And we try to do that to show all the kind of fun things you get behind that wall. So this week, you're going to get a, a bonus midweek show. Uh, we're really excited about that. And if, but if you want our extra one, if you want the one from Ken and myself, uh, once again, you're going to need to become a supporter. So how do you do that? Well, to do that, you can head to our Politics Guys Patreon page at patreon.com slash politicsguys. Or you can learn more and sign in. Uh, at the Politics Guys website at politicsguys.com slash support. So if you want to join me and Ken again, and we're actually going to take on a bunch of Supreme Court cases, including some property right cases coming out of California, please head over to patreon.com slash politicsguys. If you've got a question or a comment, a correction, or just a thought you'd like to share, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. For supporters, you can always get a hold of us on our Discord channel, channel as well. We're also on Twitter at Politics Guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkinson, and Ryan Beasley. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. I hope you'll join us next time.